Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. So today we are looking at chapters uh, 21 and 22 in Leviticus. And so before we dive in, I'm wondering if there's someone who would like to open with uh, our memory verse for this month. And I know Pastor Lori shared this last week, but really this verse just ties in so, so well to what we've been learning about Leviticus and even yesterday when we were talking about moral standards and expectations, just how, you know, that verse came out of that. And uh, yeah, so is somebody can just go ahead and unmute yourself. Let's start with 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Thank you, Ken. So I think most of us are familiar with the expression raising the bar. It's an expression that's derived from athletics, specifically the high jump and pole vault. The athlete must clear the bar with his or her jump in order to continue to the next round of attempts. Raising the bar means raising the standard of conduct or achievement to a more demanding expectation. Leviticus chapters 21 and 22 effectively does this for the priests. The Lord raises the holy bar, so to speak, for them and their offerings. These chapters remind us that often the standard for a leader is higher because the leader sets the pattern for the people. And this really isn't a strange concept for us because we all hold our leaders in all areas of life to higher standards. In the home, parents lead their children and set out the expectations for family life. In public, politicians, athletes, educators, as well as pastors, are expected to lead the way, not only by their actions, but in integrity as well. For the Levitical priests, God did have a higher standard because they had a sacred task, that of making offerings for the people. And because of that higher privilege, greater responsibility came. We may be tempted to skim over these teachings in Leviticus chapter 21 and 22, feeling like they don't apply to us. But the truth is that each one of us, in some way, has a leadership function. It may be at home, school, work, or in our community, but there is always someone looking to us for direction either by word or action. 
And this is especially true for all of us who declare that Jesus is our Lord. When we hang out our shingle, so to speak, identifying ourselves as Christians, the bar is raised. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We thank you, Lord, that every instruction is meant to bring us closer to you. Oh, Lord, as we study Leviticus 21 and 22 this morning, God, we reflect on the importance of leading with integrity and honesty in whatever situations you have placed us in. We thank you, oh, Lord, that unlike the priests of Aaron's lineage, whose lives were marred by sin and imperfection, you, Lord, are the perfect, sinless high priest and you intervene on our behalf. Father God, we thank you for the security and certainty of the finished work of the cross. Bring fresh revelation to us today and speak to our hearts, O oh God, in a way that only you can do. Amen. All right, let's dive in. So what holds these two chapters together is the same sentence that begins each chapter. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 1 says, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. And Leviticus chapter 22 verse 2 says, speak to Aaron and his sons. Unlike the other chapters that we've read in Leviticus, these two are directed to the priests. Although many people think of Leviticus as the priestly handbook, it says more to the lady about proper worship practices than to the priests. However, these two chapters are the exception. God wanted the people to know that he is the one who makes men holy, who sets them apart. It was not that the sons of Aaron were better or more worthy than the other Israelites, it was simply that God sovereignly chose to set them apart from others, to perform a special task. He also wanted them to know that in order to perform these tasks, they had to remain undefiled. And this meant avoiding some of the things that other Israelites might have been free to contact. In chapters 21 and 22, God commands the priestly leadership to maintain ritual and moral purity. Since they represent the Lord as intermediaries between God and the people, they must avoid any compromise in their conduct in religious and social matters, as well as in personal moral purity. Although these two chapters list a number of instructions that may sound strange to us, they have a logical explanation when we remember that the main issue is the adequacy of the priests to function in their assigned roles. The priests were to draw nearer to God than any of the people and to be more intimately familiar with sacred things. And therefore it was required of them that they should keep an even greater distance than others from everything that was defiling and might diminish the honor of the priesthood. 
while the priests were ordained and considered holy in terms of the position they held, that holiness was only an outward one. It did not necessarily mean that they had inner holiness of heart and conduct. What was at stake was nothing less than the spiritual survival of the people they served. If the priests failed to obey the Lord and represent God to the people, or failed to represent the people to God in a proper manner, the relationship between the Lord and his redeemed was threatened. A holy God cannot be misrepresented to his people. And the people cannot depend on a priesthood that is ritually unclean and morally compromised. Both chapters also have in common the subject of sacrificial offerings. These offerings were the staple of worship that Israel offered up to God. It was as central to public worship in Israel as Sunday services are to us today. I think we have all seen or heard of Christian leaders that stumbled and fell morally, and the fallout from that was far reaching. In many ways, a congregation's spiritual health is affected by the leadership's spiritual health. In the case of the priests in Leviticus, they were to officiate at the holy altar where people brought their offerings, which was a person's act of worship, whether it was in the case of dedication, thanksgiving, or forgiveness of sin. If the priest failed to follow the proper procedure, the sacrifice was not acceptable because the offering had been polluted ritually. So this was a huge, big deal. So the Lord gives these instructions to the priests, which come in two parts. One, instructions regarding the person and the character of the priest. And two, the nature of the offerings that they oversaw at the altar. In chapter 21, we see that the Lord uses the word profane nine times in 24 verses. In modern language, the word profane may not convey adequately the message of this passage because we tend to think of profanity as being the use of bad language. The Hebrew word, however, exceeds just coarse language or even taking the Lord's name in vain. Profane essentially means here soiling the reputation of God or the holy things associated with him, such as the sanctuary or Sabbath or polluting the reputation and status of other persons. Verse six speaks of profaning the name of God. Verse nine speaks of profaning oneself and one's father. Verse 12 and 23 speak of profaning the sanctuary of God. And verse 15 speaks of profaning the priest's children. Committing these desecrations was actually tied to covenant transgressions. Verses one to six read, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make him unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, 
his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband, for he may make herself himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. Knowing that the priests of Israel were to oversee the ceremonial worship of the people, they had to ensure that no Canaanite ritual would penetrate the priestly system. These verses that we just read make that very clear. They were not to make bald patches on their heads, shave off the edges of their beards, or make cuts on their bodies, which were pagan practices. The temptation was to accommodate the religious life of their Canaanite neighbors, whose religion was polytheistic. They worshiped more than one God and immoral. Since the priests were leaders of the people, their practices were especially scrutinized. They were called to instruct the people in the way of the Lord and to model the proper way to approach God. Among the instructions for the priests was a prohibition concerning association with the dead. Contact with the dead whether a lay person or a priest did result in ceremonial uncleanness. We've read that already in Leviticus and in Numbers 19, we'll read it again. The priests were restricted from attending funeral services, except for their closest relatives, or what we would refer to today as the nuclear family. We ask ourselves, why would that be? The people of ancient Near East regularly promoted family shrines where religious cults of the dead flourished. This involves celebratory meals following the formal funeral in which the family maintained their connection with the dead, keeping them alive, so to speak, by providing them food, drink, and sex. Yes, there were some mourning rites that were permissible for the people and the priests, such as weeping tearing of garments, wearing sackcloth, and loosening their hair, but trimming of the hair's edges or mutilating of the body were strictly banned. The high priest, however, was prohibited from any mourning or burial activities, including his own parents, as we read in verse 11. The priests were called to holiness and in turn, the high priest was called to greater holiness than even the common priests. One commentary I read said that the threefold degree of holiness among the Israelites, the people, the priests, and the high priest, corresponds to the graduation of holiness in the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. The high priest was not even allowed to loosen his hair or tear his clothes as a sign of his grief, which were seen as dramatic signs of horror or for mourning the dead. If you recall, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 65, 
the high priest who sat at the trial of Jesus tore his clothes in a dramatic display of horror that Jesus claimed to be God. The high priest had to be kept from any uncleanness that he might otherwise bring into the inner parts of the sanctuary. And a dead body is a picture of sin's result in this world. Holiness gives life. God did not want his holy priests to be associated too closely with death. God did not want his priests and his worship to be dominated by death, but by life. Our God is the living God. Jesus commented, God is not God of the dead, but of the living. That's Mark chapter 12, verse 27. The Christian church has always viewed death as the beginning of new life. The door to the blessed life of the believer with Christ and the family of God. Although as Christians we mourn, rightly and understandably so, for the loss of our loved ones and the loss of life, there is an immeasurable difference between those who mourn with hope and those who mourn without it. I absolutely love the verse in, from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18 that says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Yes, we do grieve, but not as one who has no hope. Although the priests in Israel were held to a higher bar of expectation, so to speak, we know that they did not live up to that calling. Anita shared with us last week in her teaching that the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, offered inappropriate offerings and were struck dead for their sin. We will soon read of the sons of the priest Eli, who also committed grievous moral sins at the door of the tent of meeting and were also met with death. Even Aaron himself led the people to worship the golden calf, as we read in Exodus, and 3,000 offenders were executed and a plague from the Lord fell on the community. We learn here that we do ourselves no favors when we compromise God's standards. Verses 16 to 24 read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer his, the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, 
but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. I think that the verses that I just read have the potential to be misunderstood because the command against the priestly service for those with physical defects was not meant to point out the flaws or imperfections, but rather point out God's perfection. Since God is complete and perfect in all of his attributes and actions, it would be unfitting to approach God through anyone that would appear imperfect. Just like every animal brought for sacrifice to the Lord had to be without blemish. Here we see that the priest who offered the sacrifice also had to be without blemish or defect. Yet the perfection in both the sacrificed and the priest was really not true perfection. It was only in comparison to other people or other animals. The combination of the perfect offering and the perfect offerer was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Unlike the priests of Aaron's lineage, whose lives were marred by sin and imperfections, the perfect sinless high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord, sits at the right hand of the Father, where he intervenes on our behalf. We must not worry or be troubled that the priesthood of Jesus could ever be soiled or spoiled. Our security is certain since we rely upon the Lord Jesus' perfect and complete mediation. Hebrews 9 verses 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. As we move on into chapter 22, we see in verses two to nine that it's necessary that the priests be ceremonial clean in carrying out their duties. Again, the passage speaks of the priest's relationship with the holy things of worship, which included the altar, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. As we've learned, the priests were also recipients of portions of the offerings, which was their income for serving at the house of God. Since the offerings were dedicated to God, the offerings were the Lord's to share with his appointed ministers. They had to, however, maintain a proper relationship to the offerings by keeping themselves ritually and morally pure. In verse three, it is commanded that no one can come near the holy things while they're ritually impure. And it outlines some specific things that can make a person ritually unclean until evening. 
It could be by disease or evidence of illness. And the example is a leper or someone who has a discharge. It could be something connected with death. So if you had come into contact by touching a corpse, it could be through a normal bodily function. And the example was the emission of semen. It could be by contact with something unclean. And the example is the person who touches any swarming thing. All of these made the person unclean. Once ceremonial cleanness was restored, they could be restored to their priestly service as before. So becoming ritually unclean did not end a man's service as a priest or forever prevent him from eating the portion of the sacrifices that went to the priest. If the priest became unclean, he would perform a ceremonial washing and remain ritually unclean until the evening. Verse seven says, and when the sun goes down, he shall be clean. The Jewish people start their days at sundown, not sunrise or midnight. So with this, this description, God is indicating that one can start the new day clean and pure to the Lord. This reminds me of Lamentations 3, verse 23. No matter how we might have failed the day before, we can begin each new day pure and close to the Lord. His mercies are new every morning. However, failure to obey the Lord in the handling of the holy things meant they faced the death penalty. As verse 7 says, the priests shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die, thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Contracting uncleanness or becoming unclean was inevitable. But when purification was made, one could eat the holy offering. If purification was not made and the offering was eaten, the offender basically forfeited their life. The symbolism of ritual cleansing and restoration to service is a picture of the forgiveness that the Lord graciously had for them. The priests were not expected to be perfect since ritual cleansing you know, was, was prescribed in this passage. The penalty was not for uncleanness, but for their disobedience. With verses 17 to 33, God explains how to give an acceptable offering. In verse 21, we see the words, to be accepted, it must be perfect. This is a strong statement concerning what God regarded as an acceptable sacrifice. It does not say it must be mostly good. It does not say as close to perfect as possible. It says it must be perfect. The Hebrew word used here really means complete, whole, sound, and unimpaired. This was a picture of the Messiah to come and the sacrifice he would offer and be a perfect sacrifice. 
Jesus was perfect in his nature as both God and man. Jesus was perfect in his attitude. Jesus was perfect in his obedience. Jesus was perfect in his sacrifice for sin on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The Levitical priesthood was never intended to be permanent. Now Jesus himself serves as the great high priest. Through his death and resurrection, we have access to God's presence, where we can freely enjoy him forever. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 22 ends with these verses. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. With this final verse, God gives Israel, especially the priests, four reasons to keep his commandments and to honor his name. Because of who he is, I am the Lord. Because of what he is, the one true God. Because of what he is doing, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And because of what he has done, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because Yahweh, the Lord, was the God of Israel, and because of all he had done for them, their obedience to him was proper. And these same reasons remain true for every believer today. Holiness in Leviticus is not separation for separation's sake, but for the sake of a thriving community of the people of God and the reconciliation of each person to God. Holiness is not only about individuals' behavior following certain regulations, but about how what each person does affects the whole people of God in their life together and in their community life with God. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's First Peter Chapter 2, verse 9. Thank you for joining us today. Have you become an official member of our HeartStrong community? Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to sign up. 
Once you've registered, you will receive an email with links and tips for how to engage everything that HeartStrong has to offer. As a member, you will have access to so much incredible discipleship content found on the members page, such as all of our weekly Bible study events, a monthly training plan with disciplines and practices and discipleship questions to help guide you on your discipleship journey. We also have our most recent Bible study video, all of our teacher Bible study notes, and an on-demand video archive of all of our Bible studies that we have ever done. And lastly, every month we create and curate content to encourage you on your discipleship journey. So what are you waiting for? Visit heartstrong.life and join today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together. One, two, three.